0: So far in the book of Zechariah, we've encountered the first two of Zechariah's six visions. And just as a reminder, Zechariah's visions are meant to encourage the returned exiles, the Israelites, after 70 years roughly in exile in Babylon. They're back into their land and they're rebuilding the temple. But because of internal strife, because of obstacles, they stop the rebuilding project for about 16 years. And so Zechariah and his uh, friend, his other, his fellow prophet Haggai come in and they are sent by God to encourage the rebuilding project, to get back to work because God has a glorious future promise for his people. A future that not only will restore what was lost in the exile, but actually expand and push beyond that into a more glorious future than they could ever imagine. So that's what the visions are for. They're meant to inspire. They're meant to point them forward, and they're meant to use their imagination to lift them up to heavenly spiritual things, which are, of course, future things that will one day be present that we behold by faith. That's the essence of faith. I know God has promised something in the future, and even in the present trials of right now, when everything doesn't look like it's going to happen, I'm still going to believe, I'm still going to obey, and I'm still going to endure. So what we have here is the extension of those visions. We're going, to see, uh, we're going to look at two more visions in Zechariah chapter two and three. So if you remember the, the very first vision in Zechariah one, we've got a bunch of horses patrolling the earth with different colors and they give back a report that all the earth is at rest. And that's actually not a good thing because the rest, the peace that's there is the peace of the Persian empire. They're the rulers over Jerusalem at this point. And even though there's no hostility, there's no fighting, that's not the kind of peace that God wants. The peace that God wants is everything oriented toward him in proper worship. The peace that God wants is all of his promises, the promise of a restored kingdom, of his kingdom coming to earth, and with with a messiah, with a royal figure ruling over it. That's the peace that he wants. And the second vision reveals four horns that are cast down by four craftsmen, and that symbolizes the work of the temple being something that has cosmic implications, that even though they're like, we're just building this temple bank, I don't know if this is doing anything in the world, it just doesn't seem like it's causing a ripple, it's not going the way that we thought, God is promising them, no, your rebuilding efforts are not in vain. That even in the day of small beginnings, God is building a glorious future. And if you think about how visions work, visions help people see by faith a future not yet realized. I was just mentioning that earlier. It's been said that if you wish to build a ship, do not divide the men into teams and send them to the forest to cut wood. Instead, teach them to long for the vast and endless sea. And what Zechariah is doing, or rather, God through Zechariah is doing, is he's using images and symbols drawn from the world around them to cause them to see God's promises, to see them in front of the forefront of their minds, to inspire them to action. That even though Things may not be the way that they would desire them to be. God is building through their efforts, through their daily faithfulness, through their trust in God's promises. God is going to be accomplishing his good work in this world. And this is the assurance that every Christian has. Your labor is never in vain. This is Understanding Zechariah. Zechariah chapters 2 and 3 introduce two additional visions. The first features a man with a measuring line marking out the foundations of a restored Jerusalem, or we could say a new Jerusalem. The second presents us with a vision of Joshua, the high priest, receiving pure vestments in exchange for filthy garments. And that symbolizes the forgiveness of Israel's sins. So let's dive in To those two visions. Let's look at that first one, the measuring line vision, the man with the measuring line in chapter two, verses one to twelve. I'll read it out loud. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy one of the big ideas in this first vision is the idea of divine reversal. And you see this all throughout the prophetic literature that God is going to flip the fortunes of his people. So let's look at the components of this vision. So don't get too intimidated by all the you know, man with the measuring line and, and uh, the four winds of heaven and, and all this strange stuff. Just take it piece by piece. This man is measuring out Jerusalem. And he's basically kind of plotting out the land of a new Jerusalem that's going to be filled with peace and prosperity. So it's kind of like if you went up to a construction site and there's a foreman there. He's got his hard hat on and he kind of is pointing out to this uncultivated land. And he's, and he's measuring out and he's pointing to a blueprint and saying, one day there's going to be this beautiful building here. Right? And you're like, well, I don't really see it yet. And he's going, just trust me. Right. And then we get the blueprint here. What's this new Jerusalem going to look like? And he gives us a couple details. It's got no walls and it's filled with people and livestock. It's prosperous and it's safe. It's peaceful. Right. If you're a city with no walls, you're not afraid of enemies. Well, actually, there is a wall. God himself says, I'm going to be the wall that protects her. He's going to be a wall of fire around her. Now, if you think about this, why fire? Why a wall of fire? Well, if you look all the way back in the book of Exodus, God guides Israel out of slavery from Egypt by manifesting as a pillar of fire. And it does that by night and by day he's a glory cloud. And here he says, "I'm going to be a wildfire around you, and my glory is going to dwell in your midst." It's almost like God is saying, "Even though you're sinful and you're faithless,'m still I'm still the, the same faithful righteous, holy, loving God that brought you out of slavery. that That's the hope of Israel, that God doesn't change. Even though Israel is changing all the time, and even though God's people are changing all the time, and you and I are changing all the time, back and forth from sin and righteousness, you know, sometimes within the span of an hour, God's faithful, right? Only Yahweh can save them. So Zechariah continues with a summons. He's saying, look, When you start building this temple, this is the beginning of God's renewal. And God is going to plan a great future for his people in which they will dwell in peace and prosperity, and he will protect them. He will guide them just like back when he did in the Exodus. So there's a response that's required. He says, now go, flee, right? Leave the north, the area of Babylon, and go back to New Jerusalem. Come back to the land. Now, if you remember back, Babylon was an empire that plundered Israel, destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed their first temple and took them into exile. That's what the whole book of Daniel is about, Israel in exile. But now God says, I'm going to do a divine reversal. I'm going to flip the script. Now they who plundered you will themselves be plundered. And then that's what happened, actually. Babylon falls to Persia. And so Persia is the empire that's currently over Israel in the time of Zechariah. But there's one problem. Why is he saying Babylon. Why does he say, come out of Babylon if Babylon no longer exists or it's no longer powerful? Why does he say, come out of Persia? Well, I think it's because Babylon serves as a symbolic representative of all the nations of the world, right? All the nations in which Israel is scattered. And he's saying that no matter where you're scattered to, no matter where in the world my people are, there's this call to return that I'm going to gather in my scattered people, I'm going to reverse their fortunes. And they will be returned to my presence. It's a sense of redemption. And this is really one of the key promises in the entirety of the Bible. It comes from Exodus 6-7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You will be my people. I will be your God. And he's simply saying, I'm going to fulfill that promise. So don't lose heart. Even though things are difficult, there is coming a day when God will gather all of his people together and he will bring them to the fullness of their redemption. He will be our God and we will be his people. This is the central promise of the Bible. God's love for his people transcends our rebellion of sin and even the curse of death itself. And that's the great hope that we have to look forward to. So Babylon is a symbolic representation that wherever you are, come out of that false religion, come out of that false faith, and go to be part of God's people. Return, hear his call of grace, and return back to him. But notice that the category of his people expands beyond believing ethnic Jews to believers from all the nations of the world. God will act in that day, which if you read that in the Old Testament, that's a signifier of a historical event in which God acts in a decisive way, In that day, God's going to do something that's not only going to restore his people, but he's going to actually graft in people from the nations into his new Jerusalem. So new Jerusalem will not be occupied merely by believing Israelites, but by people from the nations. He's going to graft them in. In other words, the enemies of Israel will become not just their allies, but fellow citizens with them. And you can hear that language echoed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, that the Gentiles are fellow citizens with, as part of the commonwealth of Israel. There's a grafting in of the nations. This prophecy does not add something new to the plan of God, but rather realizes something old. God told Abraham thousands of years earlier that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis twelve three, And the realization of that plan, that massive plan, to give Abraham a multinational family that worships God begins with their tiny little temple rebuilding project. And Zechariah exhorts his people through visions to help them grasp the fact that God works in their midst even if by human eyes they perceive nothing. But with the eyes of faith they see in their labor the seeds of a future harvest. But there's still one problem. Sin. Israel's sin is the thing that prevents all the blessings from pouring out to them. It prevents them from bringing light to the nations. Israel's sin is the big problem. And our sin is the big problem. They need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. They needed atonement. We needed atonement. And the problem of human sin is resolved, or at least symbolically shown how that's going to be resolved in the next chapter in Zechariah chapter 3. Let's read that. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garment from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch." For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So the third vision gives us a courtroom drama. You've got Joshua, the high priest. The high priest is like the chief of the priests. And priests are representatives of God to the people And of people to God. They do the sacrifices. They handle all the rituals in the temple. And Joshua is the commander-in-chief of them. He's the head priest. So he's on trial before the angel of the Lord, who's representing God as judge. And Satan, which means accuser, brings a case against him. He's like a prosecuting lawyer. Now, I'm not going to make any lawyer jokes and Satan stuff. But that's, that's essentially what Satan's doing, is bringing charges. And the high priest is representing Israel. So it's not just Joshua representing himself, but he as a high priest is standing in for all of Israel. And the case is pretty stacked against Israel because as you can see, Joshua is clothed with filthy rags, which is a symbolic way of saying Israel is sinful. Like Satan has a case. You really have sinned. You have turned toward other gods. You've not only worshiped false gods, but you've worshiped the true God falsely and you've worshiped the true God, along with other gods. All of those are big no-nos. All of those are idolatry. So this trial looks like it's headed for a guilty verdict, but something stunning happens. God calls for the removal of Joshua's filthy clothes in exchange for pure vestments and a clean turban on his head. That's all priestly garments. So he's basically saying, Israel, even though you really are sinful, I'm going to, actually exchange, instead of judging you, I'm going to exchange your filthy clothes for clean clothes, right? And he and he tells Joshua, I have taken your iniquity away from you. This represents God atoning for the sins of his people, bringing them salvation from Satan's accusations. And it's interesting that Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. And that's what's happening here right? Joshua can't make a case for himself or Israel. He's got filthy rags. His sin is ever before him, and yet it is the act of God. It is God who makes the first move and says, give him a new set of clothes. Cleanse him. I'm going to atone for your sins. Atonement, you can even see it in the word atonement, at one mint, Atonement, atonement is, is clearing away the hostility by a sacrifice to enable reconciliation of relationship." It's not just mere forgiveness. It's reconciliation. You can forgive somebody and never talk to them again. But, but atonement is saying, I'm going to reunite these separated parties by virtue of a sacrifice. But God goes further. He not only promises to atone for Israel's sins, but he says, Joshua, if you if you follow me, I'm going to give you access to my house, my courts, and heavenly places. And you're going to rule, which is interesting. That ruling language is is telling something about Joshua is going to be functioning as almost a priest-king, which those two offices don't mix in the Old Testament. But there's some, a picture starts to emerge. And then he says, Joshua, you and the men who are around you are a sign. Think about what a sign is. When you see a sign that says, you know, New York City is this far away. The sign isn't New York City. It's merely pointing to where New York City is. In the same way, Joshua is pointing toward A future person, a future servant, a servant named the branch. Now, the Hebrew word branch also translates as sprout. And what sprouts are, they're the first signs of new life, maybe after a fire or a flood. It's, you know, there's a forest fire and then the first sprouts show that it's not all over. There's a remnant and that's going to blossom into a large forest again. It's a sign of resurrection, you could almost say. And so the coming of this branch, this sprout, represents the future of God's people, that Israel lives, Israel will flourish, Israel will repopulate and grow. It's the sign of new life, life after exile, perhaps even you could say life after death. And the resurrection of Israel centers around this sprout branch servant commentators disagree on the exact meaning of the seven-eyed stone. I'm not 100% sure. But at the very least, it has something to do with God's atonement. God's atonement, God has to first atone for their sin before the time of blessing can come. And atonement and the washing way of sins and a future priest-king, all of these images are swirling around, and it's kind of like a fuzzy image. And you're kind of seeing them overlay over one another. And you're going, okay, somehow this future branch, this servant, is going to represent the resurrection of Israel. He's going to make Israel, he's going to constitute the new center of Israel. He's going to be a king and a priest. He's going to deal with sin somehow. He's going to bring blessing. He's going to graft the nations in. Okay, so this composite image starts to form. Now, the other interesting thing is Joshua's name. Again, it means Yahweh saves, but Joshua, Yeshua there's another famous Joshua that we know of. Not just the Old Testament Joshua, but there's a New Testament Joshua, but we call him Jesus. Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua. Yahweh saves Joshua. And of course, Jesus is that high priest king. Jesus is not only the high priest, but he's actually the sacrifice. He's the way that atonement can be made. How can our Filthy rags be made pure and clean. It's by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the perfect spotless lamb of God. How can the nations be grafted in? It's through the body of Christ that breaks down the wall of hostility and makes one new man. Right? How does God's spirit dwell in the midst of his people? It's by the sending of the spirit because of the ascension of Christ. Now, here's something crazy. The Israelites, they did rebuild the temple in 516 BC. They finished the project. Do you know what happened? Not much. The nations did not stream in. Israel did not return to its former glory. No king showed up. And God's glory cloud did not descend upon the temple like it did for the first temple. So the question is, did God's promises fail? That's the question in the first century when Jesus shows up. They have a rebuilt temple. It's beautiful. It's massive. But it's run by corrupt priests. And also, they do have a king, technically. They have a Judean king. Herod, who's not exactly the guy they had in mind. And so you're sitting there in the first century and you're going, what's the deal, God? You promised us we'd rebuild the temple, there'd be times of glory, we'd have a glorious king, all this stuff. And it seems like the opposite of that has happened until Jesus shows up. God did return to Jerusalem, not in a cloud of glory, not in a wall of fire, but in the form of a servant, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, a high priest Who would not only represent the people, but also represent them as the perfect sacrifice who would die for sins. He did send a king, but not one with military might, but one who conquered through self sacrificial love. This Joshua, this Yeshua, this Jesus ministered in a time when everyone was wondering whether God had been faithful to his promises. So this means that Zechariah is not just looking at the rebuilding of the physical second temple, he's looking at the future temple, the temple of the body of Jesus Christ, and also the temple of the church. 1 Peter 2 tells us that we ourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We ourselves are the temple of God. And what is the church? Is it not the place in which God dwells by his spirit, in which he surrounds us by tongues of fire? like Pentecost, a wall of fire protecting us? And isn't it the place in which the gates are open and the nations come in by hearing the gospel? What Zechariah is seeing from a distance, we are living. We are living in the time when God has constructed his new Jerusalem, his new Israel, around the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, around this high priest king that was promised so long ago. So to be part of the new Israel, is not to be ethnically Jewish or to live in the Holy Land, to be part of the new Israel, to be part of new Jerusalem, is to be in Christ, in Christ by the Spirit, the one who grafts in all nations by his blood and purifies us by his blood. And one day, we will experience the full peace and prosperity as all the nations that God has chosen are brought in, as all those whom God calls himself come into his kingdom. So this is still a work in progress. It doesn't all happen at once, but it is happening. Think about what that means for church. When you're coming to church, it's not just you're going for your religious goods and services. You are part of a moment in history. You are part of the heavenly Jerusalem. You are coming there and anticipating God's future work in the world. You are ambassadors calling the nations into the new Jerusalem. And you are singing and praising and worshiping the God who is working in our midst. Because he dwells in our midst. Because he is the God who has promised that he will be our God. And we will be his people.